Our scripture lesson this morning is from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I'll give you a minute to find that if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles. If you need a Bible, there's a red pew Bible in front of you. So once again, reading from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over there and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am st- sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are continuing preaching through the book of Exodus. Let me just say, as we've been preaching through an Old Testament book, my gratitude to the liturgists for being willing to um, say words like Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites. Um, I always, I sometimes get asked how you're supposed to pronounce some of the names in the Old Testament, and I always just tell people confidently. But, um, <laughs> but let's turn to the Lord in prayer and then look at this significant text. God and Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have once more to hear from you through your word, to see you revealing yourself to us. I pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under its authority and be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So let me set the scene. I mean, it's familiar maybe if you've been in Sunday school, but you are out in the desert, and you're tending your sheep. So yeah, you have sheep in this scene that you're imagining. And you're dazed from home, and you're hunting for grass and water out in this dry land. Um, And all of that probably would seem strange to you if it was actually you, but in this imaginary scene, this is your job, right? You've been doing this for years, decades. Um, The sun's beating down on you, and you're probably hidden inside of robes to keep cool, and you've been moving up the slopes of this mountain, and you're yelling at your sheep and trying to keep them in line. And you see something up the slope on the mountain, and maybe at first you think it's just one of those heat shimmers out in the desert, but as you get closer, you see that there is a fire. There's this big thorny bush that is clinging to the rocks as it billows flames, and you look around, wondering who lit it, and you don't see anybody, and then as you watch it, you notice something else strange, which is that the bush isn't getting burnt up in the fire, and so obviously you go and investigate this strange phenomena. And I feel like that's the scene that all of us kind of focus on when we tell this story. But what's really significant about that scene is what happens next. Because out of that burning bush, God speaks. And that is when everything in the story of Exodus changes. This is Moses here in this scene. And this is really the first pivotal moment of the book of Exodus. Everything up to now has been set up. We see Moses born in Israel's slavery, and last week we even see Moses' kind of misguided attempts at bringing justice himself. Um, But at the end of last week's passage, we see that it says that God sees and hears the struggle of Israel, and that God steps in. And this is really when the story of Exodus proper picks up. So what I want us to do this morning, there's a lot going on in these 15 verses, and really it ties into the rest of chapter 3 and beginning of chapter 4. And so we're going to talk about some of this stuff in these verses next week. But um, the central thing that happens in these verses is that Moses has this encounter with God, and God reveals himself. And so what I want us to talk about this morning is just how is God revealing himself in this passage, um, and what is Moses supposed to learn from? do that, we're going to start in verse 13. God gives, um, God comes and talks to Moses out of the bush. He gives these initial commands. Moses starts making excuses. We'll talk more about those things next week. But then, um, in making up those excuses, in verse 13, Moses says this. Um, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And on the surface, this sounds like a really silly question, right? You know, I mean, the, the God is speaking to Moses out of this bush and says, I'm the God of your ancestors. And Moses says, all right, but what's your name? Right? And that, that sounds almost ridiculous. And there's probably some amount of just making excuses that Moses is doing. But there's more to that question than meets the eye. Here's the thing to realize. Israel has been in Egypt at this point for more than 400 years. And they have this tradition and this memory of this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But they've also been very influenced by this place that they've been living for centuries. And in Egypt, like in most civilizations in this era, you have this whole collection of gods. Each with its specific name and specific role that it occupies in society. So in Egypt, you've got like Ra. He's the the god of the sun. He's kind of the chief god, but he's not like really in charge. There's all these other gods doing their own thing. 
And so there's like Thoth, the god of wisdom, and Hathor, the goddess of fertility, who's married to Ra, and Geb, and Tefnet, and Isis, and Osiris, and all these other cool things that most of you probably don't care about, but I get excited about. But each of these is a different god, and they each have a specific area of power in the world. And not only that, in this world, most of those civilizations also kind of viewed other civilizations' gods as sort of real, too. So there's these other civilizations around Egypt that worship Baal and Ashtra and Dagon and whoever, and they all seem to kind of assume that each other's gods were sort of valid, and that um, when they got in conflicts with each other, they tended to think of them as sort of contests to see... Like, whose god was bigger, right? You know, like, if the people who worship Ra and the people who worship Baal went and waged a war, it was kind of to see who had the stronger god. And um, that's the world that Moses and Israel have grown up in. And so when Moses asks this god his name, he's probably in part just thinking in terms of that world, right? He's like, okay, where do you fit into all the different pantheons of gods that people have? And how do you, how do you measure up and compare to these other deities? In addition to that, names also have a special significance within the Old Testament for Hebrew people. The Israelites tended to see names as kind of saying something about you. So if you remember back in chapter 2, if you were here, Moses' name means to draw out, which seems—it comes from the fact that he's drawn out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter, and it also seems to echo this idea that he's coming to draw out God's people from Egypt, and that's true of other names all through the Old Testament. Joshua means God saves. David means beloved. And so maybe Moses is also trying to get a read on what God is like, right? He's like, tell me your name so I've got some information about what you're doing. So then, that's Moses' question. And then in verse 14, God responds. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And this is where we need to do a little bit of explanation and where I get to do that thing I rarely do and talk about Hebrew. <laughs> um, but in Hebrew, there is a word that's sort of like the English word God, and it's Elohim. And it can be used to refer specifically to, you know, the God of the Bible, but it's also the word you just use for gods in general, or even for kind of God-like people. And that's used in the Bible. But then in this passage, we get a second name for God. Um, and that name is probably pronounced Yahweh, and that is what God gives here. And it's something like his proper name, and it comes from the Hebrew word for to be, which is Hayah. So Yah Yahweh means like, you know, he is, or the one who is, right? I am. Um, and out of fear of offending God, um, Jewish people came to not pronounce that name, and instead they would say Adonai, whenever they saw that word, and that's the, the word for Lord, right? Just the normal word that, that means, like, Lord or Master. Um, I actually learned Hebrew originally in a mostly Jewish setting, and so I often end up saying Adonai whenever I see God's name just out of habit. But, um, but what that means, so if you flip through your Old Testament, you can even see it in this passage, there are times that it will say Lord, and it's all, like, normal, and that just means that it's that Adonai word, but there are times that it says Lord in all capital letters, you notice that in the Bible? And that is not actually the word for Lord. That is Yahweh. That is this proper name for God that means I am. So in the first place, just as you're reading the Bible, that's hopefully helpful to you. Whenever you see that Lord in all caps, that's God kind of giving the name that he gives to Moses here in this text. Um, and that's all the Hebrew, I promise. But, um, but here's why that matters. 
God, in giving this name, is trying to say something about himself. He's trying to teach Moses something about who he is and how he fits into the world and do it in a way that kind of challenges these assumptions that Moses seems to have. And so then what I want us to ask is, what does it mean that this is the proper name that God gives himself? I am. And I think that it's supposed to teach us um, at least three things. First, God gives this as his name because he is absolute. He is absolute. Which is to say, think about, we said when Hebrew people gave their children names, they were they were saying something about their children, but they were always saying something specific about, like, the state of being or place of that child in the universe. Moses is the one who is drawn out. Joshua is the one who God saves, or maybe the one who is bringing God's salvation. David is the one beloved of God. Um, When God identifies himself, it's not some state of being, right? It's not like the one who loves or the one who rules or something. It is simply being. Right? I am something. God just is. Here's how we are different from God in the Bible. I am alive, but my life doesn't come from me. It comes from stuff that is outside of me. Really lots of different stuff. I mean, it starts, I'll, I'll keep this vague in case anyone in here is young, but it starts, you know, my, my parents, right? Like a, a part of each of them came together to form me. I wasn't formed of myself. And every day since then, I've had to take stuff into myself to stay alive, right? I mean, I know in the Midwest, we pride ourselves on our independence, and there's ways that that's, I guess, good. But, I mean, if you really think you're independent, you stop eating and drinking. (laughs) You know, see how that goes for you, right? We all rely on things outside of ourselves to sustain us and give us life. In John 5, Jesus describes God like this. He says, For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So God has life in himself, rather than somehow coming into him from the outside. The psalmist puts it like this. He says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So God doesn't receive light or life from the outside. Somehow it bubbles up from within him and spills out into the universe. If you want the fancy words for it, this is them. Um, Everything in creation, including us, is contingent. Contingent, which means that we depend on other things to exist. God is absolute. He doesn't need anything outside of himself to be what he is. And that's the first part of what God is trying to communicate to Moses when he says, I am. One of the interesting things about all the stories about these other gods in Egypt and the surrounding countries is that all of them come from somewhere. Usually maybe there's like a chief god or a couple of chief gods and they kind of like, I don't know, bubble out out of primordial chaos or something. But then they have babies or get chopped into pieces or cry. And then those, you know, like children or body parts or whatever turn into other gods. And they all kind of come from other things. And so God isn't like that. More than that, a lot of these ancient religions pictured God as getting power from outside of themselves. They pictured, like, sacrifices as food for the gods. And there's places um, in ancient mythology where if they're deprived of sacrifices, gods seem to, like, get hungry or get weak. Um, they, They get power from the worship of the people that follow them. But the God of the Bible is not like that. Here's how Paul describes his being in the book of Acts. He says in Acts 17, 
the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. It's about as clear as you can make it, right? God does not need anything outside of himself. He's not taking stuff from outside of himself, but he's the source of all of those things that are outside of him. I just want to soak in that idea for just a minute. God is absolute and independent and without need. There's nothing that I can do for him that he can't do for himself. There's nothing I can give to him that he can't do or give to himself that he doesn't already have. It's the best that we do. I mean, we do serve and, you know, make gestures towards God, but at the end of the day, they're like, I remember when my kids were younger, I would come home from work and they would have presents for me and I would open them up and they would have taken things off, like off my desk in my office and wrapped them up and given them to me, right? And at the end of the day, that is all that we can do for God. There's a sense of awe and smallness that we should have before such a God. In fact, that's right here in our story. Here's in verse 5, Moses encounters God. And do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The point, of course, isn't that God is somehow offended by sandals or doesn't like people invading his personal space there. Those are symbolic actions Moses is taking to represent that fact that God is just this thing fundamentally beyond him and different from him. When we say that God is holy, that word means set apart. That everything else is, you know, is here and God is set apart above and beyond this stuff. And I think we often fail to have a sense of that absoluteness when we interact with God. Maybe the best way to see that is just to think about how nonchalantly so many of us treat him and the idea of him. That we can believe in him, we say, and not feel a sort of weight about it. That's true big picture of the kind of Christian culture in which we can live. Um, I saw a study a few weeks ago, um, it said a bunch of stuff, but I was thinking about, so 56% of Americans say that they believe in the God of the Bible. Right? Not just in God. You know, I mean, 90% of Americans say they believe in some kind of God or higher power. But they say, the God of the Bible, the God that's described in the Bible, that's who I believe in. 17% um, of Americans would rate that God as very important to their lives. And so even if you assume that all of those 17% are part of that 56, which they're not. But even if you assumed that, right, less than a third of people who say, this God of the Bible is who I believe in would say that that matters all that much to their lives. Um, you, you, got, you, you would ask if you really appreciate God's absoluteness, like, how does that work, right? How does that work? But at the same time, I know how it works, because even though I guess I'd be a part of that 17%, I mean, I can still so easily take the idea of God for granted or treat it lightly. Um, so often sin rests not in these big gestures of rebellion— but just treating God as if he doesn't matter all that much, right? You know, I believe in him, but I'm so comfortable right now. You know, I, I just want to do what's easy. I don't really desire to do things for him. And addressing that attitude begins by spending some time reflecting on the absoluteness of this I am. 
He is not a trifling matter. He's not, he's not like this heavenly uncle that we check in with sometimes on the phone, right? He is the absolute and essential source of being and meaning and truth in the universe. I mean, all of this is just a shadow, and he is the one that casts it on the wall. All of the, the sound and fury of creation is just like thunder, and he's the storm and the lightning that causes it. We need to recognize that when we think about God, we're confronting a being like that. Uh, the deepest and biggest thing in the universe, beyond the universe. And so we need a sense of awe and proper reverence and fearfulness, like Moses shows when we come before him. God is, and we are what he has made us to be. So that's the first part of God being I am, that he's absolute. And then coupled with that, there's a second idea that's also in this text. And that's that God is unchanging. He's unchanging. When God first speaks to Moses, before he gives him his divine name, um, he identifies himself like this. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Um, now right there, when it says I am, it's not actually the Lord's name or even that, that Hebrew word. I'm not going to get into that. But then in verse 15, after he reveals his name to Moses, he says basically the same thing again, but it changes. So in verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, and that's the word I am, right? I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So, so what he's doing there is he's linking this I am to who he has been, to their fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And there's two things he's highlighting when he does that. One is the nature of his promises. God's relationship with Israel rests on these promises that he originally made to Abraham to give him offspring and a land and purpose and to bless the nations through him. And God made these promises to Abraham, and then it's in remembering them that, um, that they're being applied to Israel. So back in chapter 2 at the end, it says that God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So part of this, he's saying, I'm this God, in the sense that I'm this God who's made these promises. But it's not just that God's promises don't change. The point is that he is still the unchanging God who made the promises. The thing about I am is that it's always present tense. God does not say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now this is what I'm like. He's present tense, the same God who made these promises hundreds of years before. The centuries have passed, but he's remained the same. Scripture insists that God is unchanging. This is just from the Psalms. This is my favorite statement of it. There's many, but this is just beautiful. In Psalm 102, it says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no powerful, right? The heavens and earth, all of creation wears out and passes away like a garment, um, but they alter God's being no more than changing your clothes. God remains the same. It's easy maybe for us to say. Um, I think if I asked, is God unchanging? A lot of us coming into this would say, yeah, he's unchanging. But I don't know that we appreciate the depth of what that means for us. I think we, we still picture God as an oversized human being. And human beings constantly change. 
I'm made up of these conflicting desires and, and parts of myself that often kind of contradict each other. And I change over time. That's true from day to day. I mean, there's mornings when I wake up in the morning and oh, I love life and the world. And then the next morning I wake up and I just, I want it to burn, right? <laughs> like I hate everything. Um, and I change over time. I think about like Elizabeth and I got married um, when I was 21, a long time ago. Well, relatively to us speaking. Um, the person I was at 21 is not the person I am now. And the person she was at 23 is not the person she is now. Um, in my case, thank Jesus for that, but, but I change over time. Um, and when it comes to human beings, change isn't always bad. Part of how we change is that we grow, and that can be a good thing, at least sometimes. But even there, right, I can grow wiser, or I can grow harder and more selfish. And the problem with change is that it means that every human being is also unstable. You're never quite sure what you're getting. Even someone you know and love and trust can surprise you in ways that are painful or hard. No human being can really provide us with true security because human beings are not true and absolutely secure. Here's the thing, though. God's not like that. That's what this is insisting. He's fundamentally unlike human beings. Here's how the prophet Balaam puts it in the book of Numbers. He says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do, or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God doesn't change. He always is what he is. As humans, the reason we change is because we're in this process of becoming. I'm not the same person I was ten years ago or a week ago. I'm learning and experiencing new things, um, God, though, is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is. Everything around him might shift and change, but he is unchanging and secure. And that means that unlike human beings or anything else in creation, we can trust in him and rest in him. I think some of us especially need to hear that truth because our lives have been wrecked by human instability. If you've experienced the chaos of a home, that was unsafe or broken, or as an adult, if you've experienced some deep betrayal or abandonment, that can get into you, that can gnaw at you. It makes the world seem unreliable and chaotic. In part, that's because the world is those things. But that can also creep into how we view God, and that's a problem because God is not any of those things. In fact, he's the answer that instability. When you woke up this morning, God is exactly who he has always been. His love for you is just as consistent as it has ever been, regardless of how yesterday went. His call on your life hasn't changed. His promises to you are just as true and just as certain as they ever were. We can rely on that today, and when we wake up tomorrow, that's still going to be the case. And that means that as we look to God and his promises for our security, as we rest our identity on him and how he views us, we're given a steady foundation for our lives. If we let those things define us rather than things in this world, then who we are is secure. Which doesn't mean that it's not still hard when the world swirls around us in chaos and change, but it does mean that we have a place to turn in the face of that. 
that won't change or abandon us. Our call is to make those unchanging realities about God the things that we build our lives on. Not our circumstances or our success or our strength, because all of those things can disappear. But the reality of who God is and what he says, as we trust in that, we can find a certainty in this changing world. So God is absolute and God is unchanging. He's communicating both of those things as he calls himself, I am. But there's one more reality he's also trying to bring home to Moses. And that is that he is present as well. He is present. I know I said we were not going to talk about Hebrew, but one more thing about that Hebrew language of I am is that um, it's used in Hebrew not just to talk about existence, right? Which is I am, I exist, but also to talk about presence. It's how you'd say I'm here. I am here with you. And we actually can see that in verse 12. Moses says to God, how in the world am I supposed to do this thing you're calling me to? And God's reply is, God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who've sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God on this mountain. Did you hear it there at the beginning where he says, I will be with you? That's the same language. I am with you, right? It's that same word. By using this as his name, God stresses not just his greatness, but also his closeness to any place and time. There is not a place or a time where God isn't. Wherever Israel was, wherever we are in life, God says, I am here. God doesn't just exist somewhere up in heaven or somewhere in the past, but he is present and here with us right now. His name both conveys that he's far above us, but also that he's with us as his people. I think that's part of why God gives Israel a name. Yes, he's revealing these theological truths to them, but he's also giving them something like a proper name. It's meant to communicate something personal. It's why at the end of this passage, it says, This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. It's not just a command there, but trying to say something about the relationship that Israel has with God. In fact, a little bit later in Exodus, God really stresses the idea that there's something personal about his name. In chapter 6, um, starting in verse 2, it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And again, if your translation says Lord all in caps, you know, I am, I am. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Notice that he's saying, I came to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but somehow in knowing my name, you have an intimacy with me or a, or a relationship with me that somehow transcends what they had. And then he uses that to reassure Israel in Exodus 6. He goes on to say, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So God is saying somehow, because you know me by my name, you can find confidence that I will deliver and save you. That theme of God's presence continues through Scripture and ultimately culminates in Jesus. The Gospel of John, John especially calls attention to this. Jesus makes this series of striking statements in John um, where he starts them all just by saying, I am. 
So I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for the people hearing him, you can tell they really struggle with this way of speaking that Jesus has about himself because it sounds almost blasphemous. And then he goes even further than that sometimes in John. So, for example, he's arguing with the Pharisees um, about Abraham. And in John 8, he says this, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's not an ambiguous statement. And they get what he's saying because they immediately try to stone him to death after he says that, right? Um, Or one more story uh, of Jesus doing this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they're coming to arrest him. And there's this really striking moment um, in, in John 18. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And the word he is not in the Greek. He just says, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Right? So, so these soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus. And somehow in this moment of supernatural power before his crucifixion, he just says, I am. And they're, you know, back from him. There's a power there. Jesus identifying with that name of God. Jesus wants us to understand that he is, in that sense, God's presence made manifest among us. Here's what that means taken together. God, and using this as his name, is really trying to speak to two truths at the same time. On the one hand, he's reminding us that he is beyond us. He's holy and all-powerful and eternal. And at the same time, he's reminding us that he is with us. That he's with us in his promises and in his presence, and that he's ultimately drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. That Yahweh became a human being and stepped into human history to work ultimate salvation for us. That is the hope that Israel needs, and that's going to unfold over the coming chapters. That God is, on the one hand, greater than anything the Egyptians and their gods could compare to. The Lord arises against Egypt, this political superpower that's enslaving Israel, and against Pharaoh, this king who himself claims to be a god, and against all of the the, the supposedly divine powers behind them. Um, And he smashes them. Israel needs this god who's absolute, who's bigger than these things they're confronting. At the same time, they also need a god who is close to them in their pain, who cares for them and is with them in the struggle and the anxiety that accompany his works. They need a God who will be faithful to his promises to them and who will love and care for them, even though in the eyes of the world, Israel is this battered and weak people. In Yahweh, in I Am, they find promises of both of those things at once. And we need a God like that too. We need a God who is big and powerful enough to confront the powers of our world. Nation states, and tyrants, and all the stuff that keeps us up at night from reading the news, and also the powers of, of darkness behind them, and the evil in our own hearts. All of these things that challenge us, we need a God who is absolute and exalted to know that he is greater than all of those things. And we need a God who is near to us in our pain cares for us as we struggle and are anxious about his work in our lives. A God who is faithful to his promises to us and who will love and care for us even though we 
are often battered and in the eyes of the world weak and insignificant. And in Yahweh, we find both of those things too. We find it even more than Israel could have imagined, right? In Jesus, we find the stakes raised way above what Moses would have pictured here in the desert. As in Jesus, God demonstrates his power by working our ultimate salvation in his death and resurrection over sin and death and hell. And in Jesus, we see God's presence made manifest. That he came as one of us and died for all of us so that he might draw us near to God. That is who God is. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Israel and the Exodus. The God who came to us in Jesus and who is still the God that we come to today. That is his name forever, he says. For every generation. For ours. For everyone that comes after us. Until this age draws to an end. Lord, sometimes I don't know what to say even coming before you. You are beyond me and above me. But somehow you still love us and draw near to us and tell us that you hear us as we come to you. So I pray that you would stir our hearts up in worship and in comfort, the greatness and grace of who you are. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.